your Bibles at Matthew 27. Thank you. A while back, a number of years ago, I looked at a two-part message, and the second part was God's miraculous commentary on the cross. On the cross. What's happening on the cross? Now again, miracles are supernatural manifestations of divine power. Miracles are supernatural manifestations of divine power in the external world. Miracles don't just happen, even by definition, that's why they don't, because they're something out of the ordinary. Now we saw a lot of miracles at the birth of Christ and as he walked with the Father, but we're also going to see some on the cross. Eight of them all together, four of them we're going to really look at more detail. Because some four of them, the first four, my son uh, touched on the actual action. I'm just going to show out the miracle. If you go, if you'd like to turn yeah, in verse 26, let's see here. It's the miracle of obedience. The miracle of obedience. Uh, up to this point in the commentary, he's been scourged, he's been mocked and shamed, and a scarlet robe put around him, crown of thorns, all that. But the interesting thing is, in fact, I'm going to jettison some of this, but just think of it, just think of this one part. This is the actual miracle. The miracle is, Hebrew says this, for we do not have a high priest, that's Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the miracle. See, we would sin. Give us enough temptation, you will sin. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Yeah. The fight that's going on right now is the Lord is praying us into heaven in the sense of um, that the Father is faithful to never give us more than we can handle. Because you would fail if given the opportunity. But Christ and the Spirit of God and the Father work together to keep us saved, if you will. Okay? Who yet without sin, Hebrews 4.12, or like 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. No sin. No sin. He was able to accomplish redemption without violating God's law. So that's the miracle of perf perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. But then, Matthew 27. Let me make sure I'm... Matthew 27. Hedea. Ah, the water game up here. In Matthew 27, verse 45. And I think this is where he might have... It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now this is when Christ is hanging on the cross. Started at 9 a.m. in the morning. Went to the sixth hour, that's uh, noon. Went also to the ninth hour. In other words, Jewish, uh, Jewish Roman time frame, that would be uh, 3 o'clock. So between, got on the cross at, three, or at uh, 9 a.m. But it wasn't until 3 p.m. that he was taken off of the cross. But again, there was supernatural darkness. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land un until the ninth hour. That's the, where it got dark, real dark. And people have gone back and forth. Was it worldwide darkness? 
Was it just uh, in the Jerusalem darkness? Was it an eclipse? What, what, we really don't know. And I'm not even going to try to... I don't know. But again, darkness. There was a point in time when God... Did God maybe just like a, a you know, three-way light where God you know, can dim the light? No, seriously. It might have been that. It might have been the entire world. It just... It wasn't pitch black. It, dark. It just... It just... Like everybody knows, something's going on. But again, in Jerusalem for sure. Darkness fell on all the land. There again, some would say, see... <clears throat> That's the whole land. Or is it just the three hours? Or was it just partial? I tend to think that it was uh, more of a dimming. But. but the idea is this. God wanted to make a point. He wanted to make a comment. See, this is why we said miraculous commentary on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, God was saying something. The, it went dark. I remember going through the eclipse, you know, and you know, the teachers, and don't look at the, you know, don't look at the sun, Johnny. And, uh, but the point is, you're always curious. Um, but God wanted to make a comment. Something was happening. The Son of God took the burden for our sins on Himself. That's what was happening. And there was alienation between the Father and the Son during that time. I just want you to understand that. At that time, there was alienation. Something happened. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Something was happening. Because God the Father was turning away from God the Son as far as uh, the Son was, was uh, paying for the sins, for those ugly sins, all those horrendous sins that humanity had committed against the Father. So that's the second one, a miracle of supernatural darkness. How about this one? The third miracle would be sovereign separation. There again, I just said, <clears throat> there had been a forsaken. Never in eternity had that ever happened. The Son had been forsaken. The one who had always been loved, cherished, had been forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, if darkness speaks of God's judgment, separation speaks of God's holiness. They just go together. I, I, just, I, I, I hope you grab what's, what's happening. And again, if you're a believer, you do understand what's happening. The Son is paying the penalty for our sins, but you understand the, the depth of that penalty. And, and the next time that you say something crass or ungodly or foolish or dumb, stupid, just wicked, evil, just laughing it off, he'll understand. Why do I have to ask forgiveness from him? He did more hurt to me. Just think of all that Christ had done for, has done for you on the cross. He took the penalty for your sin. Now again, when people see that word forsaken, some will say, oh, he's just comparing it to Psalms 22. Because actually in Psalms 22, he uses the same, uh, this, these same terms. Why have you forsaken me? Psalms 22. But it's not just a separation or, a, excuse me, a comparison. Excuse me, it's not just a comparison. It's not just that Jesus feels forsaken. Cross that one out. He doesn't just feel forsaken. Jesus was indeed forsaken by God. In some way, within the Trinity, and, and please, I'm not going to try to explain this to you. It says it in Scripture in the Old Testament. It says it in Scripture in the New Testament. In some way, some marvelous way, I say marvelous because I don't have to be forsaken now. Christ took 
me being forsaken by the Father and placing it on, on Him. Can you imagine that? You should be forsaken. You should be in hell. You should be damned right now. You should not be sitting in a pew or in a chair at Alfred Allen Bible Church right now. There, there is no way you should be here today. Because you should be in hell. Because your sin warranted hell. When you sin, it says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you sin, you should go to hell. Why aren't you in hell? And why, can, why are you going to be able to enjoy a ham dinner later on? You know, and cranberry juice, and cranberry, uh, uh, what is that, uh, gel, and... <laughs> yeah, Do you get the point? Do we know how much we've how much we have missed <laughs> because Christ went to the cross and he was forsaken by the Father. So again, he was forsaken. This is, the, uh, this is where the, uh, the atonement took place from noon to three there, primarily. And as Caden <clears throat> said on Thursday, Jesus bore our hell in order that we might share in his heaven. So that when you're biting into all that food and having friends and fellowship and you're healthy and you go to bed tonight kind of full and probably watched or ate too much and watched too much, maybe, maybe ask forgiveness for the, the gluttony. I trust you won't do that. But the point is, is this. You don't deserve it. And, God, and Christ took it for you. That deep anguish, that deep separation and suffering, He took all that for you. And you say, well, how do you know is it accepted? How do you know... How do you know that what happened on the cross was accepted by the Father? I mean, I think that's a good question. Let's go to, uh, uh, and just for a second, Romans chapter 1. I mean, how do you know it? I mean, is this just pipe dream? Is this just something, you know, those Christians are so weak, they need to have something, you know, have a crutch, they have to have religion. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. As let's do, as let's do verse and let's use verse 1. I was going to go all the way up, but that's just 1 to 4. It's so good. Chapter 1, verse 1. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. And notice what he did. He, go, he went all the way back. All the way back to David. This is a planned thing according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. How do you know that the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was accepted by the Father? Why? Because He rose again. Because He rose again. Because Christ rose, it means God said this, yep, His sacrifice accepted by me. Anybody that puts their faith and trust in Him, forgiven. Anybody that uh, will receive my son as payment in, in total, paid in full, for their sin, will have that same uh, against their spiritual sin, paid in full, justified, completely forgiven, one of my children. Why? Because he rose from the dead. That's what proves that Christ's sacrifice was accepted by the Father. So he had power. He had power to lay his life down. He had power to raise it up, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, he was abandoned. He was crushed. Again, dying is our substitute. I just think about, you know, how do you, 
How do you die in someone's place? It's, you, all the sins that she has committed, I'm going to put them on my, and I'm going to pay the penalty for her. I'm going to pay the penalty for him. And, and I do believe, by the way, he paid the penalty for the specific people that would believe in him. Not just some general shotgun approach. He literally paid for those who would someday put their faith and trust in him. So when he was on the cross, he was thinking of me. When he was on the cross, he was thinking of you if you are a believer. And I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say he's... He wasn't praying for the whole world. He was not dying for the whole world. He was dying for those who would put their faith and trust in him. But he was abandoned and crushed. And God was, this is such a hard term, punishing his own son. His own son. He was punishing his own son for the sins of the people that his son loved. He was punishing them. See, we don't even punish our own kids. In the, re- in the truest sense, a parent chastens our kids so that they won't do it again. But the reality is, is what we're doing is we're trying to not to... Don't ever go down that path again, Johnny. So I'm going to chasten you. That's what we do as parents. But when we talk about punishment, I'm talking about hurt and pain. God was creating hurt and pain to his son, his beloved son, because his son, not because of his own sin, but because of the sins that his son was bearing on behalf of others. The wrath was being poured out on his son. That's why Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Our our griefs he he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, and smitten of God and afflicted, and he was pierced through for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, and you know all the ours. All that was placed on Christ was because we deserved it, and we did deserve it. And again, I, I like Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians. Just I, anytime you do Isaiah 53, i got to go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's imputation. He's given us his righteousness because he took all of my sin, all of my lusts, angers and fears and hurts, all of my wanting to please others, all of my, you know, looking humble when I'm really proud, all of my, I really want, 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 more, 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 envy, covet, jealous, but yet it's really... It's not, I mean, it's, it's envy and covetousness is not contentment. All that stuff. All the stuff that, that you, sometimes you wake up, maybe you woke up in the middle of the night and just think, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. You ever do that? I trust you do it once in a while. I mean, it's, I don't know if you want to do it every day, but the point is, no, because imputation, substitution says, and Lord, thank you for dying for all of that. I can stand in righteousness. You're my substitute. MacArthur said this, though there was surely no interruption to the Father's love for him as a son, God nonetheless turned away from him 
and forsook him as our substitute. There is some way that the father forsook the son as our substitute. Still loved him. Still there was a bond of Trinitarian love. And yet, was willing to forsake and, and uh, place our sins on him. So that he could pay the ransom. And the ransom was not paid to, the, to Satan. Please. <laughs> The, the ransom paid by Jesus Christ was not a ransom paid to Satan. It was the ransom price pr- paid to the Father. Because it was the Father's law that had been violated and had been destroyed by our wickedness. So it wasn't to Satan, it was to the Father. That's substitution, that's propitiation, excuse me, propitiation. And he didn't become a sinner on the cross, but he did hold our sins. He did. Give me a, let me give you another one, another miracle, a miracle of authoritative death. We'll just very quickly. Remember, look at verse 50. Uh, Matthew, is it Matthew 27? I'm losing. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And, and you remember John 10, he said, no man takes my life from, it, from me. You don't take it from me, I lay it down on my own accord. So he has power. He has power over his body. He has power over his life. He voluntarily gives up his life. He has power, again, to be able to say, it is finished. He has power then in, in Luke 23 to say, I commit my spirit into your hands. All these things, all these miracles. And, and, and the Father has left him in the text. Why? Because he, the Father wants to make common. Do you see how everything is under the control of the Son? Nothing was under the control of Rome or the Jewish leaders or the Jewish haters or anybody else or the disciples. It was all in the Father's will. Well, let me give you four more. I, I kind of got to get moving here, I guess. Let me give you four more miracles. But these happened not before, but after the sacrifice was made. After he said it is finished. Look at verse 51. The miracle of total access to God. Total access. Then behold, the veil. And a veil just means to hide. And the veil here, well, it says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Just two different words I want to break out. The first is veil. The veil was a heavy blue curtain that separated the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies. So as you went into the sanctuary... I'm the temple, and then there was these rooms, and then uh, another altar. Then you finally get to the uh, Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies, you could only go in one time. It was only for one person. The, Holy, uh, the high priest, once a year, would be able to enter the Holy of Holies, offer a sacrifice, and basically leave. Once it. And this was Torah, which means this, that there was going to be access. It wasn't going to have to go through the high priest. It was going to be you were the priest. That's what we call the priesthood of the believer. We are the priesthood of the believer. I got scared, or maybe let's say I use the word concerned as I'm studying. Lord, I don't know what you want. And the Lord kept saying, "You're a priest. Pray to me." How many of us do? We, how many of us take our burdens on our own? I, I, I really wish I had that that that, uh, that that little machine that Ron Godown had. A few days ago, I wish I could have had it right here today. You know, it's that machine that I could go like this and I can put it up against your head and he could say, trusting God. 
And then you can go along to the next person, and, and Ryan can say, yeah, and I, trusting God. Uh, no, he's not trusting God. Wouldn't that be great if... You guys are like, Ron, are you talking about? Yeah, I wish Ron could make one like that. Wouldn't it be great to have a... That you could actually know, am I really trusting God? Am I really holding my own way? Am I accessing God like God expects me to access him? By the way, I did it to my boys. I love my boys. But again, total access. But, but here it says the veil has been torn again in the temple from top to bottom. The holy, the holy place from the Holy of Holies where God dwelt symbolically with his people. That's what he's referring to. And when Christ's sacrifice was completed, the veil was torn, proclaiming to all Jews, including everyone else, Gentiles, that you have access to God. That's the point. You have access. That's why, uh, that is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what? Our Father. That's the priesthood of the believer. So the veil is rent. And there's this gulf. There was a gulf before, this huge division, because God would not hear sinful man. Just in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, once a year, high priest, go in, offer, get out. No, now we can go to God the Father. Are you taking advantage of that? See, that's a great commentary on what God has done through Christ. That we can pray. Have you pray did you pray this morning? Or did you get up and, oh, I wonder what they're having for uh, sunrise service. I wonder if they're going to have real maple syrup. You know, I wonder if those pancakes are going to be fluffy and soft. You know, all those things. Or, or did you really get up and say, you know, Lord, thank you so much that because of resurrection, atonement was made, my sins are forgiven, and I have access to you, and as I am talking to you right now, you are hearing me. Are you doing that? Because I think... If we took and had that little test, I would say a lot of us probably didn't do that this morning. Rush, 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 trying to get here rather than to worship our God. The middle wall tore down. The old system is gone. It's interesting that at 3, uh, 3 p.m. on the day of Passover when this was happening, right at this time, there was probably in the temple a hundred thousand people, each with their sheep, having them slaughtered. So the little brook that usually didn't ran with, run with much of anything would have been would have been running red with blood of the lambs of the, of the lambs blood. Just and that just reminded us that the, the wall has been torn down. Or as Ephesians two fourteen says, for he himself, he himself, emphatic pronoun is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. I mean, he, he did it all. That uh, One new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the en enmity. So he brought everyone together. Notice, no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, as far as, the, as far as going before God. We have access to God. Number two. I was going to talk a lot about perfect sacrifice, but we're not. I can't. Number, how about the, the sixth one? 
The miracle of future judgment. Future judgment. 51b, and the earth quaked, and the, and the rocks were split. <laughs> so not only was it rent, but now there was an earthquake. You see a lot about earthquakes in, the, uh, in Revelation. Earthquake many times points to what? Judgment. Judgment. Future judgment. Future judgment. Something's coming. And so at, at the moment of that uh, sacrifice, uh, the earthquake happened because I believe God the Father was saying, and, and I want you to understand, that sins have been judged and atoned for. Complete. You don't have to, you don't have to wonder. And now he's going to ra- rise from the dead, and at that moment you're going to have absolute assurance. That moment when Christ took it all. Again, the earthquake symbolized the presence and the awesomeness of the Father. And you see the earthquakes throughout uh, the Old Testament, Moses, uh, Psalms 18, David. Uh, in Jeremiah it says, But the Lord is the true God, he's the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth will tremble. And he goes on. And then you see in Revelation all kinds of times when the earth trembled. Why? Because uh, earthquakes and the trembling of the earth and the breaking of the rocks all point to judgment. And, and there was never a greater moment in uh, uh, history than when all of mankind's sins that would be atoned for were placed on Christ and judged. And so there was an earthquake. Not only was there an earthquake, a horrendous earthquake, but the earthquake itself reminds us of the final victory of the Lamb. See, so it's not just that there was an earthquake, but there was victory. There was a final victory. Christ was able to say, it is finished. So when God shook the earth at the death of his Son, he gave the world a foretaste of what he will do when one day he shakes the earth in judgment at the coming of the King of Kings. The King of Kings is coming, my friend. Are you ready for him? The King of Kings is coming. How about number seven? There's another miracle. Upcoming resurrection. This is just a foretaste, okay? Verse 52, it says, The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints... Don't put all, there's not all there. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So, so now we're seeing some things. We're seeing that there's a, there's a mini resurrection. Now, this is part of the first resurrection. And I don't want to get into all the resurrections, but there's basically in Scripture two resurrections. The first one and the second one. The first one's the good one, the second one's the not, is the, for the evil. And this is just a foretaste. Okay, just a foretaste. As far as what's going to be happening... But the graves were open. By the way, was this before or after he died? Okay, important point. So you put it, let me get here because I don't want to get confused. Verse 52. You'll have to, by the way, I have a drug regimen and when it kicks in, it just, I have a hard time focusing sometimes. And that's why verse 52 is eluding me. Okay. Yeah, look at verse 51. Again, the veil of the, the temple was torn in two. Earthquake, rock split. Graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. Many who had fallen asleep. Fallen asleep were raised, which means what? If they had fallen asleep, what does that mean? They had died. Remember, 
for Christians, it's a very common thing that Christians sleep. Uh, Lee is sleeping. Lee is sleeping. That's all he's doing. He's just waiting for his body. Waiting to come back. And that's how we have to look at it. But see, but look at this. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection. Look at verse 15. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to them. Now that's important. What was the sequence? Uh, he dies. My spirit gives up his spirit. He accomplishes what he needs to do with his resurrection, and now these come out of their graves. There's a sequence there. Don't look at it this way. These people didn't come out after. They came out after, not before Christ's resurrection. You see that? Because verse 53 is very, very clear. And out of the graves, after his resurrection, they, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So there's not only future judgment, but there's going to be an upcoming resurrection. And it's a spiritual resurrection. The graves were opened. In other words, it's not about the body, it's about the soul. And look, at it's selective. Many bodies of the saints, not all the bodies. This is not a full resurrection. And I, I believe that these people had to die again. They had to go back to sleep again. What a bummer. No, seriously. Think about that. Think about just that. They, they came alive, apparently proclaimed, witnessed, and apparently then had to die again. They're sleeping. You don't see them walking around now. So I don't know how all that works, but again, I know it works, and I know it's all sequential. See, they have, do they have their glorified bodies? I'm not sure. I'm giving you a lot of questions, I know, guys. And you're, some of you are probably even getting upset with me. Why do you bring up so many questions? Just give me answers. But some were raised, not all, many, maybe a few dozen, maybe a few hundred. What, what, is he, what, is he, what is the point? What is the point? The point is, is that there is a resurrection coming. Remember, there's two different groups of people, Sadducees, Pharisees, and all the ways that they, and some said, no, they do rise from the dead. Others say they don't rise from the dead. The point is this. There is a resurrection coming where body and soul will be united. So there is this upcoming one. And it's special. After his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. Apparently, to, who were the many? I tend to think it probably was the disciples. Right? It's true. What he said is true. Verification. Verification. So God was giving assurance of a future final resurrection that when Christ comes back, all the dead in Christ will rise. And you can get that from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, John 5, just give you this one, verse 28, 528, it says, And there will come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, wicked, to the resurrection of condemnation. That's number seven. That's the seventh commentary. And the, the final one, the miracle of the new birth. The miracle. Verse four, uh, 54, so when the centurion... And we've got to have some hope here in the end. And we've gotten a lot of hope. Okay, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on. And when this, but when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, start naming them, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And they feared greatly. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. 
There's Aunt Betty. Because some of them might have been their own relatives. But they terrified. Standing by the cross was a Roman centurion, a captain which was a hundred, uh, captain over a hundred. They probably were there for the arrest, the trial, or the charges. Probably participated in the scourgings, the tauntings, the beatings, the mistreatments, the mockings. All the declarations from the leaders saying, "Crucify him!" The one who had been given the task of crucifying Christ. We can assume he was he he was a pagan, the centurion, and if religious, an idolater. But when he saw what happened when Jesus died, God quickened him to spiritual life. That's what I want you to get. God brought him to life. The centurion, his spiritual eyes were open. Wow, he is truly the Son of God. You remember when you got saved? You remember when that was? Now, some of you, you were older. Maybe it was under your, a piano and your mother was there and trying to get little Susie to... Please listen to me. I want you to understand salvation. But you remember when you were saved? Maybe you don't. For years, I didn't know when I was saved. I really didn't know when the day was. I just keep asking myself this question. Who or what am I trusting right now, right at this very moment, to make me holy before a, a holy and righteous God? And I, I keep saying, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And as long as I know who I'm trusting in now, I know I've been born again. But this is the miracle of the new birth. I think he, he puts this in because he wants us to know, listen, with Christ dying on the cross, there is hope. You can be forgiven. You can have your sins forgiven. All the really sinful, ugly, wicked, foolish, ungodly, hurtful, Wish I never said that again. Wish I hadn't spoke that before. Stuff can be forgiven. Right? I mean, what is sin? What are we talking about with sin? We're not talking about some foible. Some, well, you know, God will understand. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Well, so-and-so doesn't do that. We're talking about the stuff that God the Father completely hates, and it can be as as simple as a a, uh, small lie. It's the stuff that we do all day long. Because we want to promote ourselves and not do what God wants us to do. Right? That's what sin is. And God, and, and God the Father took all the sins, all the sins that we have done, and He placed them on His Son so that His Son would pay the penalty for those sins. But those sins are horrendous. One sin would drive you to hell for eternity. I need, to, I need to go to bed at night. You know, with what I'm going through in my own personal life, I keep thinking, well, it could have been this year or next or ten years from now. It's going to happen. We live in the dead zone. But we've got to make sure that we remember this, that Christ, no matter where you are in your spectrum of life, wherever you are, Christ died for your sins. And if he died for your sins, whether it's today or a decade from now, Maybe even a half, a quarter century from now. What does it matter? The point is, am I forgiven? Have I truly put my faith and hope and trust in everything I have, all my uh, reliance on what Christ did? Or is it someone else or something else? Or maybe plus, Christ plus. When it says of him, he 
Truly, this was the Son of God. Look at Mark 12. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And you can see it throughout the... I mean, it's very clear in the synoptic Gospels, all the Gospels. The guy came to the conclusion, he, he was the Son of God. He was perfect, perfect Son of Man. That's why he could do these miracles. That's why he could be perfect. That's why he could offer a new birth. And only God can bring a spiritually dead man to life. And so Ephesians says this, you and he made and you and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is gift? The gift. What does the Bible keep saying? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's not what you can earn. Well, I got it, John. You want me to come to church more often? Yeah, I am in coming very often. It just seems like Christmas is a good time to come and Easter. No, no, we're not talking about coming to church. Oh, yeah, I see what you want. What, do you have a building program? You want some more money? Yeah, I could probably, probably could give you another thousand for the building program. No, no, we're not talking about money. You mean, I want, you want me to be good? I mean, you want me to go and tell my ex I forgive her and and, uh, and I want to get back with her. I mean, you want relationships restored? Is that, what, is that what I have to do to get saved? No. God the Father would say this. There's nothing you can do that can warrant your salvation. Nothing. You're damned. If you go to Romans chapter 8, you can see how fast, how clear that is. You're damned. You're an enmity. Sometimes I think I run past this too fast. What is salvation? Salvation is when God takes a person who is damned and brings him into his family on the, on the merit and on the basis of what Christ has done on his behalf. Like in Romans chapter 8, it says we're at enmity with God. We're at odds. We have sinful flesh, uh, 8.3. We are carnal, verse 6. We are carnally minded, verse 7, so that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's nothing you can do that pleases God. Nothing. In fact, it's so bad, it's, we should just die. In fact, in Titus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Again, for by grace are you saved, and not of yourselves. That's the Ephesians passage. So what do I have to do? I have to turn to Christ. I have to turn to the only one because he was perfect man and perfect God, lived a perfect life, and because he was a perfect person, he could atone, he could pay for an eternity of sins and put them all in three hours of suffering and be able to, be able to um, atone for those. Three hours. How, how can how can a person pay for how can a person pay for my sins in three hours? Because he, he's an eternal, pers- perfect person. And when I came to the conclusion that it wasn't what I did, but what Christ did on the cross for me, and I received Him as my Lord and Savior, and I turned from my sin, and I turned from my wicked ways. I turned to Him, and really begged. It, Lord, forgive me. 
forgive me. I, I need forgiveness and I can't find forgiveness in doing good or thinking good or acting good or any of those goods. I can only find forgiveness in the fact that you took those sins and you bore the penalty. You suffered the consequences for those sins on the cross for John Prince. And because I was able to do that, I was brought to Christ, I was forgiven, and God brought me into his family, he can do the same for you. And really, I don't even have, I don't even have uh, booklets, I wanted to bring them up. But the point is, if you need help in thinking through this, please don't leave today without that. Please don't. Don't just go in and out, you know, doing the religious thing. It's not about the religious thing. It's about, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he can save you for all eternity. Because on the cross, after all those sins were appeased uh, for, right? Atoned for. What did he finally say? It is finished. finished. Let's stand as we close.